If you enjoyed this episode, please consider making a donation to the podcast via Venmo to the username at NQCATX. Hello and welcome to Next Quest Podcast, where I ask your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. I am your host, Noah S. Garcia, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor. Unfortunately, my co-host Amanda is unable to join us today as she is on tour with a band. Um, I think the name of the band is SheVerb. But hopefully she'll be back with us next week. Today, though, we welcome to the show Megan Van Meter, licensed professional counselor with an art therapy designation and board-approved supervisor status, who will be speaking to us about her practice in an area of specialty, the role of creativity in combating burnout for helping professionals. Welcome to the show, Megan. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So tell us, what what are your credentials and experience? You've got... Uh, Quite a, quite a bit of letters after your name. Yes, alphabet soup. Um, in Texas, you do have to have the licensed professional counselor with this art therapy specialty designation in order to legally say, I'm an art therapist. So I met that requirement, check that box. And the supervisory status thing is just something that's tacked on. In addition, I can supervise people who are moving toward their LPC or their LPCAT. And I also am board certified in art therapy at the national level. So it's actually registered board certified. So you'll see ATR-BC after my name as well. And that just means I did my postmaster's hours of supervision in art therapy and then took a competency exam in art therapy. And I have to do continuing education in art therapy. Gotcha, gotcha. Um... As far as like therapy experience, where did you do like your internships early on in your career? I actually went through all that twice <laughs> because. Well, for the art therapy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in art therapy, I did that first and was in San Diego working five part-time jobs because that's what you get to do in San Diego. Um but I was working in an adolescent inpatient, at child and adolescent inpatient psych unit, adolescent and adult outpatient day treatment, 
I was working in adolescent residential treatment. I was working in a um, residential treatment facility for adults who are living with a severe mental illness and a substance abuse disorder. I also had gigs in partial or day treatment programs through the schools for adolescents with emotional issues. And then I did a little bit of a stint at a nursing facility for people with memory impairment. So I cobbled all that together. (laughs) That's a lot of levels, all the levels of care practically. (laughs) And it was all the freeways in San Diego County. Um, So my car got to go on quite the tour, but I supervised under a fabulous woman there in San Diego who was registered and board certified in art therapy. And then I got to Texas and I didn't even attempt to push those licensure or those internship hours through the counseling board. I thought they will not understand that a credentialed art therapist in another state signed off on my hours. So I didn't even attempt to ask if this would be okay. So I did my hours in Texas. I actually worked for 13 years in the special education department of the Hayes Consolidated Independent School District down in Kyle, Kyle and Buda. I was the special ed art therapist slash counselor. So I still had to drive all over the place. (laughs) Yeah. And I bet traffic wasn't the best. (laughs) Well, when I started, it was 2005. And I lived, of course, in North Austin. So it was a a struggle to get down to Ben White. And then after that, it was a breeze. But as the years kept going by, it kept getting packed further and further south of Ben White. So today, I left in 2018. And yeah, seeing that district explode, it was the third fastest growing county in the U.S., somewhere in there, like 2015. So it went from an easy series of driving from one school to the next, because that's what I did. I I ran throughout the district wherever I got a referral. And it used to be easy, but then it became flat tires from driving through subdivisions of new construction. And of course, there's the train tracks running right through the middle of the district as well. <laughs> lots of stoplights and traffic and things that weren't there when I started in 2005, but that's where I did all my hours um, that were required for Texas licensure. Okay, very cool. So uh, Megan, what is the name of your practice? Well, I couldn't think of anything very creative, so I went with my name. (laughs) Okay. Megan Van Meter, PLLC, um, which gives me freedom and flexibility to morph it if I should decide it needs to grow and change in any way. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So do you accept insurance? If so, which ones? If not, why not? And also, do you have a sliding scale or reduced fee option available to clients? I do not work with insurance companies. And the reason for that is I have heard some horror stories for both therapists and for clients Um, related to insurance companies and what happens to your information. Um, You know, I've paid for therapy with insurance, and now I kind of wonder if maybe I shouldn't have done that had I known. 
And most clients coming into therapy don't know that any employer that is offering you this health insurance can find out that you've been utilizing mental health services. Um, and there's, I can't remember the name of the, the big data bank right now, but insurance, your insurance company will send your information to this data bank, basically. And all of your health information is used to determine other things in your life, like life insurance, for example. And in the population that I'm serving, there are people such as physicians who are terrified to seek mental health treatment for fear that their information will be leaked and they could be stripped of their license, which is utterly ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But I've decided not to partner with insurance companies for this reason. There's some injustice there and I don't want to participate in that and risk anyone's confidentiality. And that being said, if someone really, really, really wants to uh, receive a receipt that they can send to their insurance company for reimbursement, they're welcome to do that. Um, I do want them to understand you know, the risks. So that's in my informed consent document. Um, as far as reduced rate or sliding scale, I do not have any slots for that. My liability insurance company does not look favorably upon such things because they tend to be used in a very unstandardized way that privileges the people who ask for it and does not give any consideration to the people who don't. And from their standpoint, the only legal way you can protect yourself is to ask for people's tax records and financial information to determine, you know, you need to have an in-house scale for determining whether someone meets your, your requirements for reduced fee or sliding scale. And to what extent do they get a reduction or a a fee that slid down. And I'm not comfortable rifling through people's tax returns. So I would refer those people to the Open Path Collective, which is a service that will do all that for you. And then they contract with therapists who will give you that um, sliding scale. I do not work with Open Path at this point, but I've actually got my give back planned that I can't launch just yet. I'm not ready for that, but I do have a give back planned as I've realized that there are so many ways to give back and it doesn't just have to be through your fee. So what I really ultimately want to do is use my time and resources to fundraise for nonprofits that hire art therapists so that they can have additional funds for purchasing the materials they need to support the program um, because that's often overlooked in a budget. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. I like that. Um, are you currently seeing clients via telehealth, in person, a combo of both? Or, and, and like, what are your plans moving forward with that? My practice is entirely virtual. It's all online. And I never would have dreamed that I would <laughs> choose this route because I'm not the most tech savvy person you're ever going to meet. Um, but there's a lot of benefit, I believe, in reaching people in a place that's comfortable for them. Don't have to deal with traffic. They don't have to deal with waiting rooms. They don't have to deal with this COVID back and forth stuff. So all we need is stable internet connection. That's that's all we're banking on. And, right. and two digital cameras per person so that I can see their face as well as what their hands are doing. That's really important to be able to tie in all that information but this is the way I plan to be doing things. 
cool. I'm totally virtual as well and, and plan to stay that way. So I, uh, you know, I, I get where you're coming from with that. Um, now, is being a therapist your first career, if not what was? And what was it that ultimately drew you to being a therapist? And especially like, you know, the art therapy stuff too. I have been a therapist since day one. So this is my one and only career, um, which means I don't have that interesting perspective that sometimes people bring when they were something else first. But I just knew this was for me, art therapy specifically. Um, I had been funneled all through childhood. All the adults around me wanted me to be an artist. So of course, that was the last thing I wanted to be. And finally, about eighth grade, it was like, oh, I guess I have to be something, something realistic. I'd picked, you know, aerobics instructor, chemist, all these things that I should not have picked. <laughs> but I wasn't sure what to do in the art world. I, all I knew was um, commercial design, that sort of thing that didn't really mm -hmm. appeal to me. And I took the PSAT exam my sophomore year of high school. And check the box for, I'm pursuing a career in the arts, like, I guess, because people <laughs> tell me I should. And I got literature back, of course, from different schools. And I got something from Bowling Green State University in Ohio. They talked about their undergraduate art therapy program amidst their offerings. And that just clicked. It made so much sense. Oh, my gosh, using art to help people understand what's inside and to unpack it and to reconfigure it and pack it back in in a much more tidy way and to help people understand meaning behind not just what they create, but how they create. It just made so much sense to me, but I wasn't sold for another two years. Um, but so by the time I entered high school, or I'm sorry, by the time I entered my senior year of high school, I knew I'm going to be an art therapist. And my guidance counselor told my sister he was worried about me because I thought I knew what I wanted to do with my life. <laughs> <laughs> and these days they want you to have that figured out in kindergarten. <laughs> I know. No kidding. Uh, well, very cool. Um, so I, I'm sure within art therapy, there's a variety of different modalities, like in and of itself in terms of that aspect of your experience. Um, so what modalities would you say you draw upon and what sorts of evidence do you rely on to support your treatment of choice and how do you stay up to date about that information? Well, here's where it would be really helpful to have a diagram. <laughs> <laughs> um, I practice according to a framework. So it's not just a model a narrow therapeutic model. It's a, a whole framework that incorporates and integrates the physical, the emotional, and the intellectual aspects of just human mental processes and how all those combine to create mental images. Um, think of the metaphors that come out of your mouth. There's something attached to it that is a, a physical nature, but we don't ever really think about it. Um, you know, I feel like I slipped on a banana peel. Well, that's physical when you get right down to it. Um, so this framework, actually, my professors in grad school created it in the 70s. I was in grad school in the 90s. So they created it, introduced it to the art therapy community as a, a way to conceptualize art therapy treatment 
in a really broad manner that um, was unbiased. Back in the day, art therapy used to be, is it art psychotherapy or is it artist therapy? There were two camps at war. There's always two camps at war. Um, but this is a framework that combined all that. It doesn't matter. What really matters is what does the client most need? Do they need art psychotherapy or artist therapy? This model puts it all together. So it's not so much about what material are you using? It's how is it being used versus how did you give any instruction or guidance for the use of it? And how is that working out? So you're really paying attention to real live feedback in real time mm -hmm. from your clients. You're watching their process. You're watching what comes from their process, both the art product, as well as the way they respond to what they've done and discuss their experience, all that is data that is used to help me plot on this diagram, essentially, where are they? What sort of mental information processing are they using right now? In assessment, I have to figure out what's their native form of information processing. It's for everyone, they've got a preference and none is pathological. None is better than the other. There's physical, emotional, intellectual, and those can be broken down further. But looking at where is somebody perhaps over-functioning, because that can lead to symptoms. For sure. Yeah. What's the name of that framework? It's called the Expressive Therapies Continuum. And there's a little blurb about it on Wikipedia that may or may not be correct. But <laughs> you can at least see the drawing I'm talking about, the diagram. But yeah, for assessment, you're looking at over-functioning, under-functioning, or blocked functioning, and that's not integrated. So right. the goal is to use media and methods to help people integrate. And so it's like medicine. You're gradually titrating them and making sure they've got yeah. access to all this information processing so that they can show up for whatever situation in their lives is before them and respond adaptively and resiliently instead of just sort of, this is my habitual way and I don't really mm -hmm. have any other resources because when we're faced with stress and our response pattern doesn't match what the stressor calls for, then we really suffer. And all of this, you know, this is taught to me. I barreled through college in four years, went straight into grad school and this was taught to me. So I just digested it and I didn't, think anything else of it, but it wasn't being taught elsewhere. And then I got out into the world of practice where it was all cognitive behavioral therapy was the only thing that would save anybody's lives. And so, okay, that's only one aspect of someone's mental information schema, but okay, I can do that. And it wasn't until advances in neuroscience in general, clinical neuroscience began to come out, I'm going to say, 2005 on, perhaps, that everything I was hearing from all these big names in psychotherapy and clinical neuroscience was like, they're talking about this framework I learned in the 90s, only they don't know it. <laughs> so integration turns out to be the thing. And emergent functioning, how one form of mental organization feeds upwards into another level, um, there's developmental significance to that. And you know, that's what I hear the big names talking about, emergent, emergent functioning and isomorphism and entrainment and all of this, all of these terms I learned in grad school. So I'm still using that 
framework and using the data that the client puts before me and doing continuing ed that really zeroes in on advances in neuroscience because it, all it does is bolster what I'm doing. Right. I love it. I love that, that approach. Was that kind um, of nerdy? Sorry, I got nerdy. No, I, like I said, <laughs> I loved it. That, that's what I, I, I love nerdy. So, so please feel free to nerd out. Um, so tell us a little more about yourself. What are your hobbies, interests, TV shows you're watching, music you listen to, et cetera, et cetera? Oh, that famous question that no therapist knows how to answer. Oh, I'm a person. <laughs> oh, oh, no. Um, I'm not a TV watcher. I got off TV early on in adulthood when I realized this is kind of a bunch of junk and I didn't see people that I could really relate to or want to relate to. Um, so I turned that off. And I am actually cut out to be a little old man is what I've decided. I like <laughs> to just kind of putter around. Um, so I'm a putterer. That's what I do. I keep myself busy. Oh, this little project, that little project, that thing. The other thing I write, nothing's ever been published yet. I haven't attempted to get it published yet, but that's a goal for 2022. Um, not fun stuff. It's academic writing. And it's all about that theory I just described. Um, so, you know, somewhere in me is a fiction novel burning, but I got to get this other stuff off my plate as well. <laughs> That has, has to come first before the fiction novel. Um, so I just really enjoy being in the moment and doing whatever project seems the most interesting to me. And I don't get bored. So it's really hard to say these are my hobbies. I like this, this and this when it's like, well, there's a whole smorgasbord of stuff. I like to just keep busy. I'm a slow paced person. So you'll never see me running around, scrambling, busy, busy, busy. I'm not like that. I just like to, I'm more energizer rabbit. I have a, a predictable pace and it's kind of slow, but I'm always doing something. Gotcha. Yeah. I can totally relate to that. That's kind of how I generally spend my weekends too, is just like, well, what needs to be done? What do I feel like doing? You know, what, what about this project? Or I wanted to write this thing or, you know, whatever the cases. So I can totally relate to that. That's um, next, I have an Amanda question, which is to describe your ideal client. My ideal client is someone who knows that they want to work in a way that is embodied and brings more of their physical self into the therapy session and who is not afraid of their own creativity or lack thereof. A lot of people think creativity is painting, music, drawing, dance, maybe some poetry. And if they don't identify with any of that, they think I am not creative or creative things aren't for me. When really creativity, it's all about a mental process. Mm -hmm. I mean, scientists yeah. have to be inherently creative or nothing gets invented, nothing gets discovered. And it's the same in medicine. And in fact, artists and scientists and physicians used to hang together. But, you know, somehow the artists got separated out and sent off to their own island. And people <laughs> don't resonate with that term creativity. But I'm interested in working with people who aren't afraid of what that word really means and recognize that they have the potential to be creative in their everyday lives. But burnout has snuffed out the creativity. Which is a good segue here to the next question um, regarding your topic. 
what is burnout? What does it generally look like? And what is it the result of? Okay, so that's going to require a little bit of unpacking. And I, it's important to unpack it for any listeners who kind of loosely throw around the term burnout or compassion fatigue. My experience is that most helping professionals don't really understand the differentiation of terms. And when we don't understand the differentiation of terms, we can't describe what's happening to us. So we certainly don't know what to do about it. All we hear is self-care is the cure for everything. And yet here we are. <laughs> so <laughs> the self-care unicorn is not going to help you. But burnout is specifically related to a perfect storm of factors related to the helping professional, factors related to the population being helped, and factors related to the setting in which the helping occurs. So that is different from compassion fatigue, which is about a physical and an emotional exhaustion from having used empathy in your work with people who suffer. Uh, the literature describes depersonalization, where you are no longer able to really connect to the humanity behind the people you're helping. You just see, this is my four o'clock appointment. This is my five o'clock. You know, this is another, you know, you label with some diagnosis, there's another, you know, depressed person, another person with schizophrenia, whatever, another person with, you know, high cholesterol, whatever. So there's depersonalization. And in the meantime, the therapist is physically and emotionally fatigued. That's compassion fatigue. It's just about the overuse of empathy. Then we have vicarious, vicarious traumatization, which is a souring, that cynicism that doubt that I, as a helping professional, can actually create any meaningful change in the world because the world's just a toxic place. So that's more cognitive. That's about a belief system that is shifted toward the negative due to your experience as a helping professional. And then we have secondary traumatic stress, which is you have been exposed to traumatic material, the stories um, the art therapists get exposed to traumatic images and certainly um, physicians, nurses, they've got some pretty ugly scenes burned into their brains as well. So having all of these traumatic images stuck inside, whether they came from visual or auditory means, that enters your head. And so it's actually someone else's trauma, but now it's in your head. So you're, it's sort of a disembodied experience and you're living someone else's trauma. All of these things don't have to come to burnout because mm -hmm. burnout is the only one of those syndromes that implicates, implicates the setting. So it's about administrative expectations that are unrealistic. It could be about working conditions that are unreasonable. It could be both. So burnout for helping professionals always is accompanied by compassion fatigue and or vicarious traumatization and or secondary traumatic stress. It's not a standalone thing. Whereas, you know, if you're an accountant or something, maybe you just get tired of working with numbers. It's not your thing. You're tired of sitting at an office all day. You know, you, you burn out just because, yeah, I just don't have the passion for this anymore. But in the helping professions, it is much more about what's happening in the internal world of the helper and something about the setting is not supporting the well-being of the helper. So that's burnout. And 
how it manifests it, through all those other, you know, the physical and emotional exhaustion, not seeing our clients as, as people anymore, doubting one's ability to be effective, feeling like you're not reaching your potential, believing in a very negative worldview and having these traumatic things stuck inside. That's how burnout can present itself. And certainly there's a, a relationship to trauma responses as well and how that can show up in the workplace. And no matter what the trauma response style, as far as work goes, there's going to be a productivity issue no matter what yeah. across the board. So um, I'm not sure if you want me to go any further into that or that, not. <laughs> that, that, was a, that was a lot of really good information. Um, I think you really defined that well. And, um, you know, it makes a lot of sense. It's it, like you said, it's kind of a perfect storm of factors. Um, so here's uh, an Amanda question, because I'm also curious about this. How did you get interested in working with burnout? Well, I became very tired um, of continuing education that wasn't meeting my needs as an art therapist. There's a lot of sit in a chair and listen to someone yammer away, and you may get some interesting facts and figures out of that, but it wasn't helping me develop as an art therapist. And so the person of the therapist I began to really cling to that phrase. The person of the helper, you can generalize to that. None of this continuing ed is meant to help me center myself to provide fabulous services to the people I'm serving. And I noticed um, an awful lot of focus on technique as if, you know, if you just learn the right techniques, you'll be a great therapist. Well, that's not the case. Um, so I actually started a business in Austin called ABCs for Therapists, and that stood for art-based continuing ed, clinical peer supervision, and consultation, or the three Cs. And what I did was I ran workshops. The, the only thing that really took off was the, um, the workshops, the continuing ed, because I wanted to bolster people in terms of the person of the therapist, who is this person, let's bolster you so you can do, go out and do the fabulous work you came into this field to do. Uh, because no continuing ed was addressing that as the, the, the therapist wasn't a factor in therapy. It was just kind of bizarre to me. But what I got back was more feedback that what was wanted was learning techniques, you know, I got these clients who won't talk. What art tricks can I use with them to make them talk? Like, well, I didn't go to school to learn tricks. <laughs> and if you get your client to talk, then what are you going to do? You know, there's a whole process here. Therapy is a process. Uh, so that kind of didn't work out. And then I went off and worked for two years in a graduate art therapy program, training students to be art therapists. And I got to see firsthand what the standards are, or at least in that program, of tending to the person of the student growing into the person of the therapist. I had a lot of attention paid to that in grad school. That does not seem to be the case anymore. Um, based that's on interesting. Why do you think that that's the case? Well, it could be program specific, but there are also so many more demands I went through a 48 hour credit program. Now the standard is 60 and some are moving to 72 all for a master's degree. And 
students are paying for each and every one of those credits. I mean, this is expensive stuff. And so many more competencies are being addressed that students are just being plugged full of information, but there is zero time left to really focus on developing yourself as a strong person of the therapist. So students are just scrambling these days, doing the best they can and getting out on the other side of school, wondering what is therapy? How do I do this? Right. Yeah. So the, I became, you know, that just solidified more interest in person of the therapist realizing, wow, what's getting cranked out these days. These people aren't prepared. The, the person of the self hasn't been acknowledged yet. And when you haven't paid attention to the person of the helper, you are more prone to all of those ugly syndromes that can include burnout. Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's part of the reason why I feel like therapy is especially important for therapists. I would agree. I would agree. Cause there's a person in there. <laughs> right. Right. Um, now, since the pandemic started, most, if not all mental health professionals have been overwhelmed by the current need of mental health support and have been working hard to try and keep burnout at bay. What can helping professionals do for themselves regularly, especially as this pandemic continues, to prevent getting to that burnout stage? Well, number one, it's unfortunate that the state of affairs is such that the person of the helper is being left to defend themselves against workplace setting issues. <laughs> you know, your employers now want you to practice self-care so you don't burn out. Well, burnout implies the employer. So we right. <laughs> have to acknowledge that. But some things that they can do to help prevent that from happening, it really is about preventing um, compassion fatigue, vicarious traumatization, and secondary traumatic stress. And something that I would recommend, if I may, I did not write this book, so I, I'm not marketing for myself. Yeah, <laughs> please, any, any info. A friend and colleague wrote this, so I'm marketing for her. Um, there is a book out there called Beyond Self-Care for Helping Professionals. And it actually takes the model that she and I were both trained on and sort of um, simplifies it, I guess you could say. I ran some workshops in Austin using this as well. But it turns it into how are you tending to your own needs? So instead of looking for a diagnosis, it's just where are you really strong in shoring up what it means to be a person and what areas do you keep missing? Because those areas you keep missing are what are contributing to you being tripped up. So it's really about using creativity and understanding that creativity is about mental activity, not drawing and painting. And it focuses on life enrichment. And the concept behind life enrichment is that it takes you where self-care cannot. If you envision a homeostatic process, self-care is about taking you back to baseline. So getting enough sleep, eating a balanced meal, um, exercising, all those things we're supposed to be doing all the time. And we all know that anyhow. That's supposed to bring you to baseline, but then you're working in this capacity that depletes you. And so you're supposed to practice self-care just to take you back to baseline. And all you're doing is bouncing back and forth from baseline to basement. And life enrichment is about seizing opportunities that are right before you 
and maximizing them to really focus in a very intentional way. All these little opportunities you have for stimulating different neural pathways in the brain to increase your, basically your creative radius and putting you outside the comfort zone. For example, do you eat the same breakfast all the time? It's when you're at risk for burnout, you're just doing robo life. Everything is the, the shortcut. You don't want to think about it. You can't think about it. You can't, you're kind of in crisis. So being able to step back and say, I'm going to have something different for breakfast next week and deliberately planning that and making sure you've shopped accordingly and making it happen. You're actually introducing new neural circuitry to your daily thought process. And this is how we break out of being trapped in this cage that has the label burnout on it. And it's something that people can do every day. It's self-reliance which fosters resilience. Resilience is about the ability to make a choice in the face of stressors and challenges. If our self-care is I run to the massage therapist, A, we're shelling out a bunch of money. Not that massage therapists don't deserve the income, but from a self-care perspective, we're having to make the time and the money, which for some people is a problem, but now we're also reliant upon someone to take us into this relaxed state. And chances are the next time you're stressed out at work, there's not a massage therapist that's going to show up to get you out of that. (laughs) That's kind of where you come in. That's where resilience comes in. And so this book is fabulous for burnout prevention. And if someone is in burnout postvention, that means they've already thrown in the towel and walked away from their career and they're looking for something else to do. But the the smoldering is still happening and they're Mm -hmm. wondering why they don't feel relief yet. This book Uh, on a self-help level can actually help them the further they get away from that toxic employment experience. This may be very helpful to them. If someone's in the throes of burnout, a self-help book is not going to be enough. But if any listeners don't identify with being in that kind of crisis right now, this book is thin. Each chapter is like 11 pages. And the goal is not to be a to-do list. It's to be easy and to remind you here are some easy things you're kind of missing. There are written reflections. There are um, experiential assignments. So you can really grasp in a a full-bodied sense, what does this concept really mean? And I used it for teaching, actually. I made my students figure out how to go beyond self-care. I taught it in a summer class between first and second years of the program. It was the career counseling class. I decided this belongs in career counseling because they might need it if they're counseling someone with a career crisis. And they all gave me feedback. We wish we'd had this at the beginning of the program. So those are people who are only two semesters into being helpers. Imagine people who are two decades into it and, and have never figured out how to bolster their lives. Right. And so talk to us a little bit about creativity Uh, about why creativity is especially helpful in preventing, intervening, and recovery from burnout? Well, like I said, it's a mental process. And so instead of lying there and admiring what your existing mental processes have been able to accomplish, which is kind of the heap you've fallen into, it's really actually working on rerouting stuff going on inside the brain so that you are thinking outside that box. 
again, burnout from that burnout, not only puts you in the box, but it makes the box get smaller and smaller. So creativity is about getting out of that very little box, which you can't do by running the same old mental scripts. You're in that box. You tend to not notice it until it's starting to really close in on you. But by then, you've already kind of ingrained these ways of being, ways of thinking, ways of looking at the world that are kind of um, stiff. And so creativity is about becoming fluid and flexible once again, which is what we really need to do to just go up against a career that demands so much of emotional workload from us, regardless of what kind of a helping professional you are, you're up against this. And then if you've got a, a working setting that is suboptimal and private practitioners fall into this too, the um, first labor law in the US was literally called master and servant. And so there we've got that power imbalance and a lot of Therapists will go into private practice thinking, I will liberate myself, but they've internalized the role of servant, and now they're the servant to their business, and they burn out too for the very same reasons that agency therapists burn out. So creativity can help people bypass all of that. That makes a lot of sense in terms of like regaining some sort of cognitive flexibility, for sure. Um, Next, I have a question from Amanda, which is, what are some examples of forms of creativity that help with burnout and what might that look like in session? Is there a method of creativity you've found produces more success or is it unique to the individual or the job in which they most regularly engage? It's the last question. <laughs> it's unique to the individual. It's not unique to the, the job in which they engage. It's really about how is your nervous system wired? So this is not a diagnostic thing. Um, burnout's not even a diagnosis in this country yet. It's only a diagnosis in Sweden and the Netherlands, actually. That's, it's ridiculous that it's not. It's so prevalent. It's going to be an ICD-11, but only as a Z code, which is not a diagnosis. It just is another occupational thing, basically. So it's not a diagnosis here yet. There's concern actually from what I've read that it may cause a lot of financial strain on, uh, you know, lots of disability claims coming in, for example. Oh, yeah, yeah. So there's a financial reason that it is not a diagnosis. But anyhow, I, I would not be able to look at someone's art making process or art products and say, yep, burnout. <laughs> so... I'm really looking for what's going on within that individual and where are they kind of stuck? Where have they robustly built up their reservoir of resilience, but where have they not? In what type of information processing? There's kinesthetic, sensory, perceptual, affective, cognitive, and symbolic. So I'm looking at all those six components and where integration is lacking. So there's not a one-size-fits-all or Oh, definitely paints over markers or definitely dancing over drumming. It really depends entirely on the individual. So I read the article that you had sent about brain flow states, and I'm kind of fascinated by this as I experience this frequently when I'm seeing clients and doing other sorts of various activities. So I have a couple of questions about this. How is this similar and different from mindfulness? 
Is it similar to the hyperfocus that neurodivergent people experience? And why is it beneficial for us? Well, flow actually is its own category of mental activity. And it is different from mindfulness in that flow is something that is specific to the individual. What puts me in a flow state and what puts you in a flow state could be two different things, even though we've established we both like to putter. <laughs> Our projects may be very different and what makes us right. flow so it's not like, here's your flow exercise, folks. Whereas in mindfulness, you can take a more um, kind of standardized approach. It doesn't have to be individualized because you're really training people to be conscious of their thinking and any judgments they're making and trying to ins- let the judgments filter out and instead just describe what is. Right. And in flow, you're not trying to describe anything. It's a state of mind that hopefully everyone who's listening has experienced. It is just, it re, it's self-reinforcing. You are in this zone where you are working on this thing that actually is complex and is demanding a lot of your mental capacity, but it's enjoyable and you want to see it through. And it, it's just sort of, like I said, it's self-rewarding, self-reinforcing. That's very different from flow, or I'm sorry, from mindfulness, which doesn't have that component to it and is really not about um, the experience of doing something. It may be more like, while you are mowing the lawn, what does the grass smell like? That sort of thing. It's not about mowing the lawn is like my thing. I could do this for hours. Time just flies by in flow. Time, time flies, hours disappear and you have no idea where they went. Um, And the thing about flow they are finding, and I think there's going to be a resurgence of interest in flow. It kind of fell off the radar and was tossed in the creativity bin. Oh, that's just what happens when you're creative. And most people aren't creative. So most people don't know flow. But the truth of the matter is many people do. When they're in that zone, they're doing something that is rewarding in and of itself. They're engaging in this task because it's providing them with some sort of um, inherent benefit and time flies by. It's challenging, but there are no complaints. They just want to ride with this thing. And what they're finding in the studies lately is that the reason that it appears so effortless to the person who's experiencing it is because flow actually is linking together neural networks in new and different ways. So it's like the accounting department is now working with the sanitation department, and they're both lending their strengths to this project. And that's why things are going so easily. It's not like the accounting department and the marketing department are trying to work together on the same old stuff they always work together on. So there's this level of challenge, but it's an interesting challenge. It's not disinteresting challenge, which we all face those tasks as well. And there's no flow associated with that. In fact, that's burnout is the opposite of that. There's flow is gone and it's gone from all dimensions of your life. You're not having flow experiences anywhere. You're not taking on those, those tasks. And as for the hyper-focus in neurodiversity, there's a similarity, but it, there's important differences too in that with, and, and I do not identify as someone who is neurodiverse, so I want to apologize if I'm misrepresenting anything. What I've gotten is from reading rather than from life experience. But with neurodiversity, there are going to be these pockets of things that attract your attention. It's, it is what puts you in your zone, 
But if someone tries to pull you out of it, it's immediately discombobulating. And you've got a lot of resources that are invested in processing this kind of narrow range of things that get you, get your focus aroused to that level where it's enjoyable, but pulling away and shifting because a timer went off. I mean, it's a bummer for those of us who are in the flow and our timer went off and now we got to go and, you know, do some responsible thing we don't really feel like doing anymore because we'd rather be in flow, but we can put our creative work aside or whatever it is that's got us flowing, you know, few more seconds to quick tidy up this thing and then go off to do the responsible thing. We can make that shift, even though it's frustrating and we don't like it, we can do it. But for people who have neurodivergence, it's harder to make that shift and can be very disorienting. And so in a school environment or a work environment, if they've latched onto something that's letting them flow that way, and then poof, they have to go to the next task, that shift is, is rough. And that's where you tend to see a lot of the, the distress come from in people with neurodivergence. So flow is not quite the same thing. Okay. As far as flow, what it, what it sounds like it goes back to is this idea of flexibility. Yeah, you're just sort of pulling from all kinds of streams somewhere there in your neural circuitry. And that is promoting flexibility. I did read a study. It was done in China recently. They compared mindfulness intervention to a flow intervention on well-being. They measured well-being um, during pandemic quarantine periods. And they found that mindfulness actually assisted with the maintenance of well-being for short-term quarantine duration. Whereas flow actually helped with well-being for both short-term and long-term quarantining periods. So I think there's going to be a resurgence of interest in flow research now that neuroscientific advances in terms of brain imaging are, have become more sophisticated to go back and revisit what's actually happening. Because there is another study out, actually there are several studies that indicate that uh, flow can reduce burnout. And most of the studies are on like academic burnout and things that aren't exactly helping professional burnout, but there is a promising study out there on how it does impact things like anxiety and depression, that there's uh, positive outcomes when someone is introduced to flow experiences. So really in treatment, what I'm trying to do with people is help them find flow experiences and learn to translate that into how can we do this outside of the therapy session. That's very cool. So I have another Amanda question here for you. Uh, she asks, consuming creativity can be just as important as engaging in it. I've listened to many therapists on this podcast, particularly talk about the types of shows they are and aren't able to watch following an emotionally taxing day at work for example, true crime, drama, et cetera. What factors do you think influence whether a consumed form of creativity can help combat burnout? Or do you think consuming creativity helps at all? Is it only helped by engaging in creativity? I think we have to be careful about what we mean by consuming creativity. Um, are we intentionally consuming creativity or are we for example, turning on the TV because it's there. <laughs> right, right. If that's what we're doing, uh, 
we're back into robo thinking and just sort of watching colors and shapes and sounds go by. Right. And a lot of people at that point aren't very discerning at all about what am I getting out of this? Um, for some people, they are so checked out that they don't really intend to get anything out of it. It just is a companion more than anything. So at that point, we're not looking at creativity at all. We're not intentionally seeking out something to bolster us in any way, shape, or form. So that's very different from, I've had a long, horrible day at work, and now I want to learn about, you know, what happens uh, in the event of a supernova. (laughs) So I'm going to, you know, turn on my TV and learn something. So that's very different when we are creatively choosing we have an intention for what we're doing and what we want to get out of it versus this is just cheap entertainment. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. Um, it, it sounds like really what it boils down to is the intention behind it and being intentional. Yes. Definitely. As far as benefit. Right. That you are choosing this because X it's okay. If all you need is cheap entertainment and you know that, <laughs> but recognize that that is not the same thing as truly creative input because it's not actually forcing any kind of shifting inside your own head and your own way of doing things. If it's not creating any sort of a shift for you to look at things differently, experience things differently, it doesn't meet the criteria for really creative consumption. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, next is another Amanda question. She says, I work with providers that work SIMS, and it's an organization near and dear to me. What would you say to helping professionals such as therapists whose focus is helping creative professionals who maybe don't find it as relaxing to turn towards creative mediums after focusing on creative professionals all day? I think a SIMS rocks. (laughs) Just a shout out to SIMS. And... To answer that question, it really goes back to we need to redefine what is meant by a creative endeavor. Um, you know, just because you work with creatives doesn't mean you should go home and be robo person. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. It's about finding what's going to work for you. And if you haven't found it yet, that doesn't mean it's not out there. Um, I ran into, well, I deliberately ran into a potter out here um, where I live now, and she is doing a custom piece of work for me. And turns out her first career was as a chemist. And she just had this edge to, there was something else she needed to do, to do with her brain. She was being very creative in her daily endeavors. Um, but in a very kind of restricted way. And she just knew I got to do something else. And she knew it involved the arts. So she dabbled. She dabbled until she found ceramics. And the moment the clay hit her hands, she just knew this is my marriage. This is what else I do. So now she's retired um, and just is pursuing life as a potter full time. So that's really what it means to, you know, you can be a creative And what you do with your job all day long might not be the way you need to engage creative mental activity when you're not at your job. And the same thing for the people who help creatives. Yeah, I have a question. I'm curious. So 
sometimes, you know, you talked earlier about um, people like not feeling creative because it's not associated with something that is considered traditionally creative, like, you know, arts, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I'm curious about the ways to get creative about creativity. Yeah, breaking out of the box. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like in, in what sorts of other ways, rather than traditional art mediums, can we like try and harness creativity? Oh, gosh, there are so many, so many ways. And that's one of the, it ties into my practice. Um, I had first thought of, well, I'm no longer supplying the art materials because in an in-office scenario, that's what I'd be doing. Right. Um And I thought, well, should I send people pre-made kits? Well, that gets to be expensive and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, no, I don't want to train people to be dependent upon the art materials I send them. I want them to look around their homes and see what do I have that I can use differently. So it's really stretching the way you think instead of this is a vase and this is the only thing it can do is liquid and flowers, you know, okay, well, what else might we be, what if we turn it upside down? What else can we do with it? You know, there's a a shape at the top and a shape at the bottom. What if we trace those shapes? You know, do you have anything you can trace with a highlighter, a pen, a pencil? So it really starts with what's within your reach Mm -hmm. instead of what's at the gallery in New York that I am not going to see during COVID. It's what's within your reach that you can do or think about differently. And that's where it all begins. And from there on out, it's just reinforcing what works for you, what doesn't work for you, and paying attention to those two differences and learning why. Why are you drawn to this? What was it about this that kind of turned you off? Because that's important data as well. So it's really opening up people to what's already there and what they're capable of. Every day, people have to be creative in their lives, you know oh no, the babysitter canceled and I have an appointment and, you know, my partner has an appointment and blah, 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 blah. How are we going to swing this? That requires mental flexibility. (laughs) You can't just sit down and cry. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you can, but after that, you should do something else. So I'm not really asking people to do something that's remarkably different from what they're already doing. I'm just asking people to harness it. And you can't harness something if you've never paid attention to it. Right. And it sounds like burnout is kind of also like it becomes this self-reinforcing cycle and like breeds a sense of like stuckness. Um, and, And I know that whenever I work with people and they get to a point like that, it's like, well, then it's time to put a cog in the wheel, right? And stop that process. And so it sounds like to me that flexibility creates that cog which then helps shut down that cycle. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It's using your mind differently and, you know, using your resources differently. Mm-hmm. That's what's required because when we're in crisis, we shut down to the bare minimum and we run on autopilot. We all do that. That's just how we're wired. That's efficient. But given how often we're in crisis anymore, it becomes a problem when we're supposed to show up and be functional and other people are relying on us and depending on us and we're not really all there. And like I said earlier, it's 
you see how this translates from agency work to private practice among mental health professionals and also among chiropractors, physicians, anyone else who can go into private practice and they, they take the role of servant with them and literally recreate the burnout experience yeah. without yeah. realizing, of course, they never intended to do that, but they didn't know how not to do that. Curious question here. What's your favorite way to be creative? Oh, gosh. Well, with a private practice, I'm able to put more intentional thought into that versus, you know, agency work, um, that sort of thing where here's the schedule I must run and anything else is sort of secondary. Uh, Now I make sure I am working out twice a day, 30 minutes, and it's dance. That's my thing. Cool. And I found an online dance program that is all about authenticity and doing it your way. And that's the healthy way. And I have found, I just have so much more flexibility, you know, moving the way my body naturally wants to move instead of how someone is telling me to move. Mm -hmm. So dance is really important to me. Um, If I couldn't move, I don't know what I would do. And I had a, a medical scare several years back and my movement was becoming restricted. And I was really worried, what am I going to do if I can't dance? So that's really important to me. Um, Also, as an art therapist, obviously, art is in there somewhere. So I've got a daily art making practice now. It's as short or as long as I want it to be. You know, some days I have more time for it than others. And I'm trying to just push the envelope a little bit, like restricting the materials I use. But how can I use them differently? instead of my same old comfortable ways, what else can they do? How else can I, you know, can I tighten my grip, loosen my grip, hold it this way, hold it that way? What kind of pressure am I using? Um, All of those things are completely within my control that deserve to be explored because I'm learning more and more about what I can do in that. And, And you can take that and, you know, translate that elsewhere. I get into the kitchen and do some creative cooking um, following recipes, that's a, a very linear process, hopefully. <laughs> but my favorite kind of cooking is like, well, I need to use these five ingredients, none of which I've ever thought about combining before. What can I do with them? And so it's the challenge of, I got to use these things because they're going to expire. So how do I make that happen? What can I do with these five things? That really pushes me outside that box of my go-tos. I'm a vegan. I do eat a lot of salads. I'm kind of stereotypical. So <laughs> having to use different ingredients that have been hiding in the fridge or the pantry for a while, that is, that's more of a stretch, but that's also my favorite way to cook. I prefer that over following a recipe. Yeah. So, so yeah, I've got some creativity baked in. Um, and there are certainly more ways that I could be baking it in. And I'm kind of, that's the purpose behind the pushing the art materials to do different things for me and exploring my limits with them to help me figure out. So where do I go from here? Mm -hmm. What's next on the creative agenda? Very cool. Now, is there anything about burnout and or your approach to this that I haven't asked that you feel is important for our listeners to know? Um, I think the only thing, and it's kind of a therapy general question, but it does relate to this. It's like, how do you know when you're not burned out anymore? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, 
It's a good question. How do you know when you're sitting up in bed? You know, at, you, what, at what angle do we describe it as sitting up in bed? It's something we don't stop to think about. So we don't examine how we get into burnout. You know, if there's no threshold yet because there's no diagnosis, there's no diagnostic criteria for, oh, you're one point shy of being burned out. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. So I think it's important for people to know how they get out of it. And I, I target my practice towards people who identify with burnout rather than people who are burned out. Because when you are burned out, that is your identity. Being able to identify with something. Well, there's other things you identify with too. So let's not pathologize the burnout and make it who you are. Because when it becomes who you are, it's hopeless. Mm-hmm. So I want to make sure people know, no, it's not I am burned out. It's I identify with burnout. <laughs> I feel it. I'm feeling it. So how we recognize that we're out of it is, well, I've got concrete data that's coming from literally the hands of clients to indicate these shifts in the way they're processing information. You know, they're going to start seeing differences in the way they show up and their, their art products are going to take on a different nuance. Someone who only works in black and white may be kind of uh, restricting their affective input because they kind of can't take anymore. Makes sense. And if that person then starts to gradually experiment in color, color triggers affect and all the advertisers know it. And, (laughs) you know, (laughs) that's why therapists want their offices to have a certain colors, a certain vibe they're going for, for their clients. But yeah, color really triggers affect. And so if someone who avoids color starts working in color, that's a shift in the way they're approaching the world. And so I'm going to start seeing, they're going to start seeing a difference in their art products and the way they discuss their art making experiences and their art products is also going to shift. I am also a fan of feedback informed treatment. So that keeps me in line. And I know, okay, that, that seemed like a really powerful session. And then I get feedback that now that was kind of just, you know, <laughs> vanilla, <laughs> didn't really do anything for anybody, but the therapist, um, that's important data for me. So there's not just the nonverbal stuff watching the shifts happen, but there's also the verbal feedback. And so the clients get to set their own goals and we regularly assess where are we in relation to goals? I think it's very important for people to get into therapy and understand the goal is to graduate. The goal is not to be in therapy forever and let that become part of your identity. So we're essentially discharge planning from day one. What, what do you need to get out of this? What do you want? What do you want your life to look like? And then that's my goal is to help them make closer and closer approximations to what it is they have in mind. Gotcha. Very cool. That's, I'm really glad there's somebody out there like you focusing on this because it's so needed. And, um, you know, everything that you've described about, um, you know, the approach to burnout makes so much sense, you know, um, primarily like to me, what really stands out is that idea of rigidity versus flexibility and like that rigidity causing like a cycle and stuckness and like, the creativity allowing the flexibility to navigate out of that. 
is kind of like my summary of what I've heard. <laughs> yeah, definitely. They're, they're polar opposites, really. So it's using one to help integrate the person, their nervous system, and to recognize possibilities where, where when you're burned out, you don't see possibilities. You just see a to-do list. Right. And it's stacked against you. So, and, you know, I will add for people who have experienced marginalization, they are more likely to succumb more quickly to burnout mm-hmm. than their non-marginalized peers. And when you take a look at the, the helper workforce, there's a lot of people who are helpers who are in communities that have been marginalized. And they're all at even greater risk for burnout just because their nervous systems have already been under siege. Right. So they show up trying to fight against that being put into the box and creativity really can help set them free in many ways. Very cool. Um, well, transitioning now back to some questions about you as a therapist, you know, we just talked about people who are marginalized. What kind of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable clients such as those who are transgender, undocumented, or BIPOC, to name a few examples? I have not had specific work experience with any of those populations you just named. Like, that's the reason why they came to therapy, to deal with those issues. It's not that I haven't worked with those individuals. It's been under the umbrella of something else, like um, working in a men's maximum security psychiatric prison, you know, that was definitely a, a diverse mix, but also one in which you do not overtly draw attention to anybody's vulnerability because then they become victimized. Right. So right. that's an unfortunate reality in men's prisons. Um, but in other settings, like I mentioned, residential treatment for adults with severe mental illness and substance abuse. Um there were, that was in San Diego. So that's also another a melting pot, a cultural melting pot, if you want to use that term. So people of different backgrounds who, uh, you know, not just related to skin color or country of origin or ethnicity, but also the, the spectrum of gender diversity also present there, but that's not why they were in treatment. Right. So I've had the experience, but I'm not someone who can speak with expertise on this is how you work with someone who is um, a Latin immigrant, for example. That's not, that's never been the area of focus for why I was working with people. Um, but I have worked with them and I've shared a little bit with you previously, you know, my own experiences of marginalization. I am your kind of same old nightmare of a therapist. I'm female, I'm cisgender, I'm heterosexual, I'm white. Most of them are. Um, but I, my lived experience of marginalization comes from actually being an art therapist, which is in a minority. Talk therapists kind of control the narrative and try to define what the experiential therapies are. And as a result, I've had a lot of career opportunities denied to me, a lot of assumptions made that I don't know what a diagnosis is, I don't know what a theory is. Lots of very unflattering assumptions have been made about me and what's in my head and what my limitations are. And that's actually translated into the way clients have looked at me too. I had one um, client in adolescent residential treatment. I was providing individual services to her. Mostly I did group work there, 
but I was doing individual work with her. And she said very politely, she was not trying to just be a jerk adolescent. She was very polite. She said, you're a really nice person. And, and I respect that, but what can you really do to help me? You're just an art therapist. And she'd internalized that message from what was going on around me. So that, that workplace setting problem that contributes to burnout. So I have experienced what it means to operate in a way where you are prejudged based on other people's lack of understanding and lack of interest in finding out more information. Well, that's quite unfortunate. I mean, I think art therapy um, has, it's like, it's needed and it has its place in our field. And I'm sorry, I'm sorry you've experienced that. Um, And, you know, I, I think that as therapists, When we don't understand something, that's when we make assumptions, right? Um, or when we feel intimidated by something, um, you know, and I think most of those assumptions for people come from like a place of fear. Probably so. Probably so. Um, there is so much more to know. Always. And, and that's scary. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, and just having somebody do something completely different from the way you do it. I don't know. I just, I feel like I wish every therapist was more familiar with creative and art-based ways of helping people because, you know, like, like you talked about earlier, it's an integration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the expressive therapies, art therapy, music therapy, dance movement therapy, and drama therapy are psychotherapies, original, embodied, experiential, integrative, um, implicit professions. And talking was not the healing cure. If you look globally, if you look at what, what did healing look like in all these cultures around the world, it wasn't sitting there and talking about it. Um, and somehow that became looked upon as less than in contemporary Western psychotherapy. And now there's a resurgence of interest in it now that people are aware, oh, the body is there. Oh, we could be doing something with that. Um, but so there's a lot of interest. Like I said, I was running workshops and people just wanted, they didn't want person of the therapist stuff until they were burned out. They would attend my burnout workshops. But in the meantime, they really just, yeah, I know, go figure. <laughs> Helpers don't reach out for help until they're in dire straits. But in the meantime, they just wanted cheap tricks, creative tricks for making people talk. Like, well, that's not really, (laughs) that's a Band-Aid. There's so much more to it than that. (laughs) Well, and let's be honest, talk therapy isn't the pathway to healing for everybody, you know? No, and also, you know, conversely, I can say, and embodied ways of therapy aren't the pathways to healing for everybody. Some people really want the control of what words come out of my mouth are what I'm ready to deal with. And I'm not, I don't want to bring my body into this. So everyone's got a different path. Well, I am uh, so glad we talked about that. Um, I think that's important. And, you know, I encourage any therapists listening, um, you know, do a little bit of research about art therapy Perhaps it is much more than you think it is at the surface. Um, 
Now, uh, another Amanda question is next. And you, you kind of talked about this a little earlier. Um, how do you determine your client's treatment plan goals? And how do your clients know when they're done with therapy? Yeah, I did talk about that. Um, sorry, I'm pre-jumping the questions. But <laughs> it, is, it is really a collaborative effort. It's their therapy. They're paying for it. Um, so they need to have us, you know, if they come in and say, I don't even know where to start. I'm so burnt out. Okay. I can help with that. But ultimately the expectation is as they get stronger within themselves, they'll start standing up and saying, I want this, this is my goal. So that's great. You don't have to have a specific goal when you come into therapy, if things are that bad, but a specific goal will come into view as you start getting better and you notice you're getting better. That's going to be one of the signs you're getting better. But as far as what I'm doing as an art therapist, like I said, I'm tracking what I'm seeing, what I've been trained to, to track, visual indicators of how they're processing information and what's over-functioning, under-functioning, where are they lacking integration. So I'm always watching for that. But the beauty of this framework I use is that it's not something that cannot be taught to my clients. So I want them to be able to understand, well, here's what I'm seeing. And that doesn't mean in, in adolescent residential treatment, I actually had a girl say, it was very brilliant of her, just one day in group. So we're in our therapy. And if I start like using happy colors and drawing happy shapes and things like flowers that I'll get discharged faster. I'm like, well, not from residential treatment. There's a whole bunch of people you have to <laughs> convince that you're ready for discharge. But, you know, she was thinking about it. Like, what does this look like through an art therapist's eyes? So hopefully someone who chooses to become a client isn't going to just, oh, I'm going to stop only using black and white and I'll use color and I got to get out of treatment faster. Like, but you chose to be in treatment. Right, <laughs> Why yeah. don't you accelerate your discharge when you're really not ready for it and you're throwing fakes at me? So I, there are, you know, I've got ways to take a look at those um, deceptive acts, but they rarely show up in a private practice setting. So I'm working with someone to help them understand what I'm seeing. And at the same time, they're helping me understand what they're seeing. So it's a very collaborative effort. And by soliciting feedback about how are you doing outside the session, what are you noticing that is of concern to you, um, and how am I functioning for you as your therapist, by keeping a close eye on all of that, that hopefully is creating an experience in which the client can really start claiming their successes and recognizing and speaking toward the successes. And I understand it as well. I'm not the last to know. Oh, what? You think today is our last day of treatment? Oh, <laughs> how do we get here? So ideally, yes, termination is planned for graduation is what I like to call it. Termination has kind of an ugly connotation. <laughs> I know. I hate that word. It's so like, I don't know. Off with your head. <laughs> it's just... It just does not feel like an appropriate word to like end somebody's journey of healing. I don't know. <laughs> no, there's nothing therapeutic and relational about it. So right. I like graduation better and we're planning for graduation from the day one. So we can hit, you know, recognize when we're hitting milestones. And of course, on my end, as I'm having to do the treatment planning and everything, I'm writing goals that are client informed. They're not just my goals. But I'm writing them in a way where it's like, okay, after X amount of sessions or X amount of months, this is what we want to see. Are we seeing it? 
If not, why not? What about the treatment plan needs to be changed? So that's, it's always a conversation and it's always in flow. Um, things in treatment don't always go as planned because as any therapist knows, clients are living their lives and being re-exposed to the very thing that brought them into therapy. So mm -hmm. it's not like healing a broken finger where you follow the doctor's orders and all is well X amount of weeks later. This is very different, um, but it doesn't mean that it can't be tracked and talked about and known and that graduation should be planned for and recognized when it's time. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I love doing treatment plans collaboratively. I think really that's the only way to do it in my opinion. Um, so next question here, are you a therapist who will laugh or cry with your clients? Oh yes. I mean, I think reading that question, you sent me the questions in advance and reading that question was like, well, of course, <laughs> but then I recognized, oh, in some psychotherapeutic models, you kind of don't do that, but I'm, wasn't trained to avoid being a human being in my sessions. Yes. And, you know, I think of some of the populations I've worked with and how strange I would have looked if I had not responded like a human being. So I don't show up in the therapy room as a talking head who, who thinks and does not feel. <laughs> right, right. I think it's important. Exactly. And that's, that's why I think is so important about it. But, you know, there's definitely some people out there who, who don't agree with that. Um, so um, thinking about the, the next one is a, another one of Amanda's questions. Um, she asks, has there ever been a time that you've worked with a client for a period of time, but then realized that maybe you're not the best fit or are no longer able to help that client? And if so, what made you aware of that and how did you handle it? I would hope that through the feedback informed treatment and the collaborative approach that there would be no surprises such as that. Yeah. So that's a way I try to prevent such things because it doesn't give anybody any confidence to be like I was in therapy and it didn't work out. You know, if, if I was the wrong therapist for them, I want to know that early on so I can get them referred to someone who really can bring them to graduation. They need to have that success experience. That's what they've come to therapy for. So if I can't do it for them, I got to get them to someone who can. But in some of the capacities where I've worked, yeah, this happened. Um, within the school district, for example, you know, I was the special ed art therapist slash counselor. And so when there was a referral, I was it. I was the person they got to work with, whether or not that was ultimately destined to be a fabulous fit was not part of the equation at all. Um, and I think of a, a client I worked with who um, I took on, I mean, by the time someone was referred to me, it was clear there was an emotional behavioral issue. It wasn't, is there one? It was, what goals would you work on with this person? And I took on this person who obviously clearly had mental health issues and was not thriving in the school setting. Um, but this person also did not want to thrive in the school setting. 
and it was very deliberate. And this individual showed me pictures, uh, videos of themselves at home, laughing it up with the family, shooting hoops, playing games, that kind of thing. So it was clear we're not just looking at this depressive case. This is a setting specific issue. And, you know, my hands were tied behind my back. I had less than 50 minutes per session, really, when you got down to the students had to receive a pass to come to where I was located. And so it was not 50 minutes. It was 40 to 45 at best. And this person wanted to literally slump over and pull the hoodie over the head. And that was participation. And in the world of special education, just because someone refuses to participate doesn't mean you can dismiss them from your services because it is deemed that an emotionally disturbed youth cannot make good decisions about what they need for their mental health care. So I was kind of, in essence, stuck with this person on my caseload who didn't want to be on my caseload. And it was just very difficult because there was no progress and this person was bound and determined not to make progress. And I left during their high school career is when I exited that job. So I do not know if this person ever made it to graduation because this person was not actively pursuing accruing credits to move from one grade level to the next. So, you know, this was going to be all on them, essentially. Um, Had this been in a private practice setting, there are more things I could have done with that, like referring them elsewhere. Um, But in the setting I was in, they were stuck with me. And another example, uh, it was a, a case that went beautifully as far as outcomes go, this person graduated from my services. Um, but at one point in my career working with this individual, they began to experience a lot of issues that were coming up related to um, identity specific to, you know, I'm turning into a man and I have my bio father's last name. I think he's a jerk <laughs> and I've was adopted by stepdad who I really identify with. So this person also um, was identified as having an intellectual disability. And so none of this was particularly overt and linear, but it kept coming up in his art process. And long story short, I got to play the role of Darth Vader a lot in the scene where Darth Vader reveals that he is Luke Skywalker's father. And I so wish that there had been a male art therapist for this person to work with. I wonder how that would have changed his process. He never once complained. I wish you were a guy. Um, And like I said, as far as outcomes go, he successfully graduated from treatment. But I wish in those moments that I had been able to refer him to someone who might have fit the body part for Luke, I am your father. (laughs) He made, gotcha. the, he made the most of what he had to work with, and that was me. <laughs> well, you know, and I think you bring up a good point. You know, when we're working in community-based settings, we ultimately don't have control of the clients that we, we, we see. And sometimes it's just inherently not a good fit. And um, it depends on your supervisor what you can do about that, you know, and that, that can be really frustrating. Yeah, it is. Everyone's making the most of what they can do, um, making the most of what they have to work with. But sometimes 
it's not a good fit either for the therapist or for the client or for both. And that affects outcomes. It it didn't affect outcomes in that particular case, but it could have. Mm -hmm. Okay. One of my favorite questions is next. How do you define holding space for someone? Oh, therapists love to hold space. <laughs> Let me hold the space for you while you go run your errands. Um, <laughs> it's, it's such a task to hold space. Um, really, I define that as, and I don't tend to use that term because it is a little overused, and I think therapists understand what it means, but other people do not. But really, it's about, I've got the perimeters. I'm guarding the perimeters while you're in this safe space doing your work on unpacking the stuff that needs to be looked at, that is begging for your attention and begging to be sorted and reorganized. And a lot of feelings are going to come up and it could be yucky and icky until we get to the fun part. And in the meantime, I'm just going to protect that space. So it's, it's psychological, but it's also physical. Mm -hmm. To me, that's what holding space means. Okay. What have you personally learned about yourself and or the world through your practice? Oh, I have just found it a complete privilege to be a therapist and to be a witness to other people's joys and sorrows and life transitions. I mean, words just don't describe it. If, if that were payment, that would be complete. I'd be a millionaire. <laughs> I think most therapists would be millionaires. Um, unfortunately, that's not payment. But I've learned so much about what it means to be a human being and a person by being a therapist and being that witness. Um, you know, it was really interesting at the K through 12 level, you know, all those different developmental levels and all their different developmental tasks um, watching these big moments in, in their lives and like, wow, I don't have kids myself. So it was like, I'm going through these moments kind of with them. It was long-term therapy. So I saw many of them for years and it was just such a privilege. And I wondered, wow, I wonder what my childhood adolescence might've been like if I'd had a therapist to be a witness to me for all those invisible processes that I didn't even know had words. So I think for me, uh, growing as a person is just simply being present to other people. Yeah, totally agree with that. It reminds me, you know, the, you were talking about becoming a person, which I think is the title of a book that Carl Rogers wrote, I believe. Um, it's actually a really, really fantastic read. I love Carl Rogers. Um, and I, I would say anybody who is a therapist should read it because it's just really important. Um, and it speaks to that, you know, we have to be a person to help people. Yeah. The work we do is relational and we can't show up as a robot with a success formula right. <laughs> <laughs> that you can get from a vending machine these days. Um, yeah, it's relational and we're modeling what it means to be a person and to have all these life experiences and the feelings and the confusion and the uncertainty and the anger and everything that goes with it. And we're modeling what it means to tolerate that ambiguity and uncertainty. And actually, that's part of the creative process, the creative mental process. And it turns out that being able to tolerate ambiguity and uncertainty is a protective factor against burnout. 
That doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Kind of amazing. One more score for the creative process. (laughs) (laughs) It'll help you be a better person. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you mentioned earlier quite a few things that you do pretty regularly to take care of yourself. If you just have one just awful, awful day, is there one thing that you absolutely have to make sure you do for yourself? Awful, awful day. Sounds like, okay, now I'm isolating. (laughs) That's one of my go-to behaviors is just seal off the world and recuperate. Um, I think it's connecting to try to bypass that, which is my natural tendency. How can I connect? And that's where fur babies come in. Mm -hmm. And I, I shared with you that mine is deceased. Um, so I don't have that, but I do know that's an important part of my getting over that big, huge hump and my tendency to just shut everything out because any relationship has emotional input. And when you've had a crappy day, you, you're done with emotional input. You don't want it. You don't need it. And so the presence of a quiet being who can let you simply just be with them, there's nothing like it. So in the absence of a fur baby, <laughs> there's human beings, I, plants as well, although it, it's the feedback is slightly different. <laughs> yeah, slightly less responsive. <laughs> slightly less. The affective input is a little bit, yeah, a little bit different, really low level. Um, but so that's relationships and figuring out who are those people who are so solid and strong within themselves that they have presence. And I can reach out to them knowing they have presence. They'll let me know if they can't, if they can't reciprocate in that moment. Um, They're not going to entertain me on the phone while they're doing 10 million things. That's not what I need. They have enough presence to discern whether they have room for the conversation. Now, this next question is also, I'd say it's probably my second favorite question. How would you define happiness? Ah, well, as you know, it comes from within. (laughs) So that's not really an answer, but it it is the truth. Happiness does come from within. It's easier to be happy when you don't have life attacking you. That's for sure. Although there are these amazing examples and writings of people who did have life attacking them and they found happiness in the midst of it all. So that's what I'm striving to achieve is happiness regardless of circumstances. But yeah, I'm like anyone else. I prefer it when the flow is going with me instead of I'm going with the flow. (laughs) (laughs) But it's that accountability and responsibility. That's part of happiness is recognizing that I hold the key. And I think in cases of burnout, since people are, it, it, inherently involves the setting in which the helping is is happening a lot of people don't hold the key you know they literally don't but then again you see this translate into private practice they hold the key but they act like the prisoner so it's internalized Um, but yeah just delving into that how can I be happy anyhow 
and realizing that it's not someone else's responsibility to put that in front of me. It's mine. Totally agree. Totally agree. Um, now, are you in therapy or have you ever been in therapy? Yes, I have been in therapy and I do believe that, yeah, therapists ideally are in therapy to keep your stuff separate from your clients' stuff, you know, if not for anything else, but to make sure that vicarious, or I'm sorry, now I'm mixing up my definitions, secondary traumatic stress to make sure that's not happening inside your own head. Um, but certainly for the growth potential. And, you know, every therapist comes into the career with a past um, that had its owies. And we want to make sure we're not operating from our owies. So I have been in therapy in the past. My last therapist and I, it's February 2022 right now. And my last therapist and I wrapped up our work together at the end of March, 2021. So it's been 11 months and I'm in that zone where I'm thinking about what do I want my next therapeutic journey to be about? What are the goals that I want to work on? And what kind of a therapist do I want to have help me get there? So I've, I'm still formulating ideas. I've browsed through some therapist directories thinking maybe this one, maybe that one. Um, but nothing is solid yet. Nothing's saying it is time. I know what I want to work on. And here are the top three therapists I want to interview. I'm not at that point yet, but the hope, the expectation is really that sometime yet this year, I will have reached those decisions. I love the intention that you have behind that. Well, thank you. I, I think that really helps the therapist. You know, I can work with therapists who want to be in therapy just for the sake of being in therapy. That's not something I'm opposed to. But then you come up on this goal thing. What do you want to work on? Oh, I just want to know myself better. Well, okay. <laughs> so how will we know when you've done that? <laughs> right. Yeah. What's the criteria for graduation? Um, again, therapists should be in therapy, but they need to be taking breaks as well. Otherwise yeah. it just becomes part of their weekly errands and it has no meaning. Totally, totally, totally agree. Well, Megan, is there anything else that you think would be good for a potential client or other therapists to know about you and or your practice? I think it's important for them to know that this is, you know, sadly a cutting edge area of mental health. Not that burnout is new. It's not. The term was first coined in the 70s by a psychoanalyst, um, but it existed before the term was coined. So this is nothing new. The newness is that something's there's something available for people. So this isn't just general anxiety therapy, general depression therapy, general stress therapy. It's really targeted towards something very specific that is not their fault. Burnout is not the fault of the person who is identifying with it. And I want people to know that there's nothing wrong with being a helper who needs help because especially the pandemic has taught us we were fragile. Why else have we fallen into the, the pit we're in right now? We were already fragile and not well resourced, not taking care of ourselves in a way that put us beyond self-care and returning to baseline. So this practice is really about honoring that, respecting that and serving that. 
And I just really want to help people rise from their ashes because I have done it. I was on the receiving end of workplace bullying, workplace abuse, and decided not to work for quite some time after that. And I've come back from that. That was burnout and beyond. So if I can come back, so can anybody. There is hope. There is hope, but it's a matter of finding someone to work with you who really understands what the issue is and that it's not your fault. I think that, uh, you know, saying that it's not the person's fault is really important because I think there's also um, a sense of guilt and shame associated with that in some ways. And so I'm really glad you said that. Um, And I just really want to thank you for being on the show, Megan. And, um, you know, I hope uh, therapists out there, helping professionals out there who need to hear this, get to listen to it, because I think this is such important information. So thank you again for being on the show. Well, it's just been a total pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me so much. Thank you for doing this, Noah. Thank you for listening to Next Quest Podcast. We learned something new today and hope you did too. Stay tuned to our episode next week featuring Erin Ebert, licensed clinical social worker supervisor, who will be speaking about her practice in an area of interest, navigating wellness in a weight-centric world. Next Quest Podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmitt Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmitt Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmitt.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T.com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest Podcasts relies solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash NextQuestPodcast, or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash aboutnextquestpodcast. You can also support the podcast by liking our Facebook page. Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off.